Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, podcast listeners. We are extremely lucky today to have one of my favorite people on the planet on the show, Steve Sugarood. Welcome. Thank you, Meb. Thanks for having me. So I'm I'm here looking at your Skype photo, and it's a picture of you surfing somewhere. Do you do you know where this photo is from, by the way? No, no, I don't know. What the, it might be a picture from Nicaragua, but I, I don't know the picture that you're looking at. But okay. uh, yeah, I've been fortunate to surf all over the world. We'll come we'll come back to surfing later because that's a that's a topic I know that's dear to your heart. And interestingly enough, you know, thinking back, I mean, I I think I met you almost. It's coming on almost ten years ago now. When Steve sent me an email here in LA, Steve, you remember the the first time we we met up? Absolutely, yeah. I uh, Meb, I was a huge fan of your work. Basically, I felt like you were going similar, going down similar roads that that I was going down in research, but you were uh, quite frankly doing a better job at it than I was. So I felt like, man, I really need to meet this guy, Meb. And uh, I had a window of opportunity to to meet up with you in LA. But then the window started shrinking and shrinking. I was supposed to meet with uh, our friend uh, Van Simmons at about the same time. And then another good friend of mine moved out to LA the same moment. And so I said, Meb, I'd love to, I'd love to have dinner with you or catch up with you. But uh, my only window of opportunity is with a 60 year old guy and a 19 year old guy. And, uh, are you up for that? And, uh, to my shock, uh, you were, you were on board and, and we actually had a fun night that night. I mean, I, I love meeting interesting people, and you couldn't have asked for a more eclectic dinner. And so we had Van on the podcast last week, which was a really fun one. And Van lives in this like museum in Long Beach of amazing collectibles. You could just walk around and and spend hours in there. And then, of course, there's some like 19 year old world class surfer. And I, I remember sitting down because I, I just met Steve listeners in. You know, he says, "Hey, I'm going to be in town." I, by the way, I I mentioned your your book. This is the first book Ivy portfolio. And about a day or two later, I look up on Amazon, and the book was sold out, which doesn't really happen on on you know first prints for books. Usually, that that's a very rare scenario. And I, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what it was. And I said, it couldn't have been uh, that mention of that guy that you know, said he's going to be in LA. Anyway, so we meet up, sit down with Steve. I said, Steve, what are you doing in LA? He says, oh, going surfing with Laird Hamilton. I said, oh, of course. Well, that that, that sounds obvious. But so Steve, for those who don't know, um, is a macro guy and a writer and a long time writer, been doing it for, I mean, Steve's got to be since what, the late, late 90s? Yeah, uh, 1996. I started writing an investment letter, and uh, G- give us a little uh, you know, give us a little background on on how you kind of came to what you do now. So give us a little get a little so 
Sugarood history. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I went to college at University of Florida at age 16. I uh, ended up studying finance. And uh, long story short, by age 23, I was uh, vice president of a global closed-in mutual fund. And uh, I'd done a lot of different things. I'd been a, a broker specializing in international stocks for a while, international stocks and bonds. And uh, while I was a broker, I saw that uh, a lot of my clients were reading these horrible investment newsletters. And and uh, I, I couldn't believe that these intelligent people were relying on the, such uh, basically horrendous advice, and, and uh, you know all of the all of the cliches about the newsletter industry were, were even worse in the in the mid 1990s. So I think I was 24 years old, and I said to my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, I said I laid out. Um, five investment newsletters of the most popular ones on her on the pool deck at her apartment complex and I said I think I can do this better than this and I'm not sure what better means but I'm going to go for it and it's kind of a strange dream for a 24 year old to say this is what I'm going to do but uh, I uh, I got a job the idea was that I could reach a lot more people and uh, give them a lot more useful investment advice uh, by writing an investment newsletter and and shockingly 22 years later we're still doing it and uh, and Porter and I have become one of the biggest in the world, uh, if not the biggest in the world at doing this thing, just by trying to treat people the way that you would want to be treated if your roles were reversed. So that's that's kind of the story. And, th- and that's sort of, you know, people vote with their dollars, right? And, you know, yours, uh, Steve writes a publication called Daily Wealth, uh, or True Wealth. There's two, one's monthly, and uh, we've been a, a paying subscriber for a long time. It's a macro focus. So, so Steve, why don't we talk a little bit about how you think about investing. So despite the fact you guys have an enormous global audience uh, of subscribers and readers, a lot of our audience may not be familiar with your work. Um, Why don't you talk a little bit how you think about investing, and then we'll start to move on to some more specific themes and uh, the way you see the world today. Absolutely. You know, Meb, I think, I think you and I became friends because we are two of the only people that we know who actually believe in both uh, looking at value and in looking at uh, momentum in the uptrend. And uh, I've kind of joked that uh, I don't have a lot of friends in the, in the investment world because the, the value guys wonder how the heck could you look at that momentum stuff and the, and the trend-based guys wonder how the heck you could look at the, at the value stuff. But uh, you're one of the rare guys like me that actually are interested in both uh, value and the trend. Basically, what I've written to my readers for many years is that I look for three things in an, in an investment. Ideally, an investment could be cheap, hated, and in an uptrend. And what I've found is that you can apply this basic criteria, cheap, hated, in an uptrend, to all different kinds of asset classes, stocks, bonds, real estate. Uh, you can even take it into, somewhat into uh, currencies. And the same things apply across them. You just have to figure out how do you define hated? How do you define cheap in each of these um, uh, different asset classes? But uh, I think I think that's, again, that's one one way that you and I became uh, quick friends and, was that... Uh, and was know, this something, this- you know, a lot of people, you talk to value guys or trend guys, and there's this sort of aha moment in the beginning. You know, a lot of people sort of like, whether it's politics or religion or anything else, they come to their worldview early and then they kind of stick with it. How did you kind of come around to this sort of framework? Was it trial and error? Was it years of trading? Was it something where 
you just from day one kind of gravitated towards it? Um, what, what was kind of the process to arriving at, at how you look at the, the world today? Yeah, it's. A, I think it's a great question because in school you're basically taught, at least when I was, you know, you know, efficient markets, uh, value is all that it sort of matters, and uh, you know, so I, I was coming. It had been ingrained, you know, kind of beaten into your head that value is what matters and the trend stuff is irrelevant, and so that's where I started out in the world. But then when I started actually crunching numbers for myself, darn it, the thing that actually worked. Over and over again, I couldn't make momentum not work, if that makes sense. You know, like it always won. It, it was always, um, uh, so, uh, so it was like, it was an evolution. It wasn't, uh, that I woke up one morning and said, well, this has to be the way it is. Um, it evolved, you know, Porter Stansberry probably doesn't want to hear me say this and, and he writes my paychecks, but, uh, I, I, um, you, and you're probably in the same camp with me that if I had to choose between one or the other, I would actually choose momentum over value. And I know that's going to cause uh, at least 50% of your listeners to howl, but, uh, I actually agree with you. And I, I think that, you know, a lot of we had Wes Gray on the show, uh, you know, a professor at Drexel, studied under Fama at Chicago, and and he he kind of arrived at trend following from the same sort of perspective, namely through and through Chicago classic style efficient markets and then with with some value sprinkling in and then and also, you know, but has really come to understand and appreciate momentum. And the, the, one of the kind of irrefutable parts about it is there's been a lot of research that just continues to come out in the academic community. You know, the classic paper that that really defines sort of this area is an AQR paper, Cliff Asnes, called Value and Momentum Everywhere. Yep. And, you know, it, it many people's tend to think just in terms of stocks or maybe in global stocks, but really it's a, it's an investment framework that if you apply to currencies and commodities and stocks and everything, you can really apply the same thing. And then the, there's been a lot of other people that have published on it too. So, okay. So starting with that framework and how you look at the world, again, I've been reading your stuff for 10 years, but a lot of people haven't. What's, what's sort of the way the world looks at you today as far, I know a recent piece you did uh, in the last few months was something along the lines of a, a transcript or a, a, a playbook for the, the Trump market. And, and Steve, to his credit, and I actually tweeted this certainly in the last year or two, but I said, you've been one of the most consistently bullish people on U.S. stocks, maybe with Richard Bernstein. There's not that many more that have been consistently bullish for years now. You know, most people either got out in 08, 09 and never bought back again, you know, and, and a lot of other value crowd says, no, 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 it's way too expensive. You know, the GMOs of the world and all these other shops and, and not giving them a hard time. They stick to their process. That's great. But tell, tell us a little bit about uh, what, what's the kind of the way you, uh, the way you see the world today. You know, you mentioned GMO uh, briefly. I'll just uh, say something about Jerry, Jeremy Grantham. I mean, it was incredible what he said in 1999, 2000 about at the peak. He really called the peak, nailed it. And then he nailed the bottom in uh, 2009. It was uh, pretty incredible. So uh, I don't want to give them too much of a hard time because they did do some 
did have some really great major calls. But so for me, what I want to do is find there, there are always a hundred reasons why you could sell or not buy. Uh, but I want to find the one compelling reason, the over, the overwhelming thing that is going to affect the market, uh, and, uh, which basically, um, causes all of the other reasons, uh, to, to be almost not valuable. And so, um, the thesis that I had early on, and Meb, you know, this is, is basically that, and I've been writing this for many years, essentially that interest rates would stay lower than you could imagine for longer than you could imagine. And that would drive asset prices like stocks and houses, house prices higher than anyone can imagine. And that has been the thesis that I've stuck with for many years, probably since 2009, 2010, that uh, rates would stay lower than you could imagine for longer than you can imagine. And that would drive asset prices like stocks and housing higher than you can imagine. And the thing is, is that the first part of that has been correct. And yes, we've been in a, you know, seven, eight year bull market here. But uh, we still haven't reached the point in my mind where asset prices like stocks and housing are truly higher than anyone can imagine. And I'm, I'm, I'm so meb, even though I've been bullish all these years, I'm actually still bullish. Basically, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? We are getting stretched. Let's call it the seventh or eighth inning of this uh, great bull market. But the biggest gains often happen, and, and you know this as, as well as anyone, the biggest gains often happen in the final innings. And I think that NASDAQ 1999 is, is a great example of this. Uh, the last six months of the, of the dot-com uh, bull market were where you know, the, the biggest move happened and it was an extraordinary move. And so even though stocks have gone up a lot, there's still a lot of pessimism. Basically, individual investors don't fully trust it yet. And so until they do, until they're on board, uh, the peak isn't here yet. So my, my core theme that I've actually had all of these years is still in place. And, and my current theme is really this idea of a melt up. And I like the, using the, the phrase melt up, the term melt up, because it implies a meltdown may follow. And I do think we could have a melt up like we saw in, in the NASDAQ in 1999 or in house prices, uh, you know, a decade ago. Uh, where things just completely go off the rails and uh, there's no no foundation to reality, to any sort of value whatsoever. I think that's where we're headed. We're not there yet. And so... Um and but like I said, cheap hated and in an uptrend. We have our uptrend. The market's relatively hated. It's not free for sure. But uh, as you know, uh, bull markets don't die because of valuation. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny, is that? So I remember watching a presentation you gave, and I don't know how many years ago. Let's call it two to five years ago. And Steve is spot on. Gives literally the same presentation about here's what's going to happen to U.S. stocks. And this is what happened, right? So they've had this kind of uh, trudging bull market higher. And after the presentation, I said, Steve, good talk. And Steve said, Meb, nobody cares. And yeah. it was really funny because the audience didn't. The audience was like, all right, we don't want to hear this. We want to hear, here's why stocks are going to crash or here's why XYZ is going to do this. And Steve just said, look, this, is, this bull market has a lot of room to run and here's why. And so it's funny to watch because I actually just recently saw the American Association of Individual Investors sentiment survey and the and it's still the bull percentage is incredibly low. It's at like 26%, which is a super low reading and the bearish reading is actually pretty high. So despite the fact that we're in year eight bull market, usually you don't see 
the sentiment being that low, but it's kind of this general malaise or don't care or kind of, um, I don't know the right word to describe it, but you don't have the euphoria. That's for sure. Yeah. Let me, here's a fact. Uh, I know you like to look at numbers like this. So over the past four weeks, I don't know if you saw this, the net outflow out of equity mutual funds and ETFs was $21 billion, which is, which is a massive number. Um, uh, I mean, there is just, this is not what the peak of a bull market looks like. This is not euphoria at all. Now, now someone may ask, well, Steve, you know, value is, you know, clearly we're at, we're at a high in valuations, but one point that I, that I want to bring up and stress or just just kind of have people think about is, um, sure, we're at a high in valuations, but we're also near all-time lows in long-term interest rates. I'm sure your audience may realizes that assets, you don't just choose asset assets in a vacuum. For example, uh, what I mean is, let's say that uh, U.S. stocks are paying an 8% dividend. Well, that, that sounds great. That sounds like a great value. But in 1980, um, if short-term rates are, if you can get 15% on a CD or 8% in a dividend, um, are stocks attractive at that point? Um, what I'm getting at is uh, relative to interest rates, every asset that you're buying is relative. The value is almost relative to something else. You're choosing what to do with your money, um, and uh, you have to choose relative to other assets what, where the value is, people that are forced to invest every day. Even though uh, dividend yields are low, even though valuations are high, relative to bond yields, um, I mean, do you want to buy high-yield bonds today? Uh, I mean, where where is the value? Where are you going to put money to work today? And I think when you can buy the world's top companies, many of them at... Uh, you know, valuations for PEs in the teens when uh, the bond yield is so incredibly low. I think the value is there. When you look at Japan, when it, when it soared, um, you know, interest rates were so incredibly low. And uh, that was kind of the fuel for the outrageous valuations in Japan. I mean, there were other factors, of course. But I just, I just wanted to point out if someone's saying, well, gee, why would anybody, anybody buy stocks at today's current valuations? You've got to realize that valuations are really all relative and you've got to look at what you can get for your money elsewhere. And, you know, you and I have both done this research where you kind of chop uh, the stock market into four quadrants where whether it's cheap and expensive markets and uptrend and downtrend. And we, and we always say that the highest historic historical returns have come from cheap in an uptrend, but second is expensive in an uptrend. And that's yep. surprising to a lot of people that, you know, the, the second best returns come from an expensive market, just getting more expensive. So what are you looking for? Are there any classic signs for you that, that there's either warning signs or time to get out of stocks? Is it simply trend rolling over? Um, is there anything in your kind of your playbook that you would start to look to, uh, to, to give kind of yellow, yellow flashing light? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, we're nowhere near that point yet. What I would like to do is to ride this as high as possible. I think it will go much higher than anyone can imagine. And then I will actually use uh, trailing stop type things to get me out. It's, uh, I think there's a great Soros quote. I, uh, I'm going to mess it up, but you basically want to know what you're, you, you want to know the enemy. You want to know what's going to hurt you. And uh, we know that uh, this isn't going to last forever. I'm, I'm not uh, drinking the Kool-Aid um, of, of the dot-com stocks or whatnot. I know that I'm going to get off the bus. But uh, so what I want to do actually is uh, in the next, over the next month, we're going to put together a report that's basically our four indicators of the peak and how we'll know uh, we're at those, uh, how we'll know we're at the peak. 
I mean, right now we're just we're just a long way from it, and I know that feels crazy to people who say how can how can we look at an eight year bull market or whatnot and uh, and say that this thing can't be near its end? But uh, Meb, I don't, I don't know if you know. Uh, I remember reading uh, Vic Sperandio early on. Did you ever read Vic Sperandio stuff? Trader Vic, you know? of course. Yeah, Trader Vic. Wasn't exactly. he one of the original market wizards or second round of market wizards? Yeah, maybe? yeah, yep. And uh, I remember reading his stuff, and it. it this was uh, many years ago, but uh, he did some. Something, um, he basically said that uh, a bull market had an age. It had a lifespan in, in, uh, and, and it basically he looked at the length of every bull market and said that, uh, he basically gave a probability of the, of the market, um, continuing to go on. And of course, this idea of the, a lifespan of a bull market, it, uh, it blew up on him in the 90s. You know, I mean, the, the, the bull market just kept going higher and higher and higher and higher. And, uh, I, there were a couple other guys that did this type of work too. And uh, the 90s taught me that, that that was all wrong. There is no official uh, length of time. It is when uh, when all of the factors that you and I, you know, when, when, when the euphoria is here is when is when the, the ultimate peak is in place. And uh, we're, we're a long way from that. And I think that's, you know, you can flip that too. And of course, true on the downside. I mean, how many value investors have you seen go out of business or have massive drawdowns because they say, here's a country or a sector or a stock that can't go any lower. And then it continues to go lower and lower and lower. So the same sort of thing. There's never necessarily a floor as well as a ceiling um, on a lot of investments. All right. So bonds aren't that attractive. I know you use commitment of traders a lot in some of your I, analysis. I do. You know, you, I said bond, you said uh, bonds aren't that attractive, but we're actually long treasuries. We've been long treasuries for two months and, and uh, making great money on it, but I, I'm probably going to close that trade out uh, pretty soon. So it was really high yield bonds that I was specifically saying, you know, the spreads are just incredibly narrow and what's your risk versus your reward there? It's not very sexy. Yeah. But, but so was the, is the thesis on the treasuries, was it because um, they just moved too far in one direction? Was it because all the, can you, can you explain what a commitment of traders is for, for people? Yeah, I mean, in the shortest description, I guess it is what it sounds. It is the commitment of uh, big investors in the futures markets. Um, and what you look at is which way they've committed their money. Are they long or are they short? And I think what we saw, what we saw in the treasury market was it was clear that the Fed was saying we are going to raise short term interest rates, um, in, this year. And we are going to be on a consistent path of raising short-term interest rates. And so the futures bets, I mean, this is a simplified explanation, but futures traders started betting that bonds, interest rates on bonds would go higher. And the bets reached an extreme, an incredible extreme, uh, where everyone was betting on higher interest rates uh, to a, I don't remember right now if it was a record extreme or a decade or multi-decade extreme. But whenever you see these extremes, it's, it's often, you're often very close to a turning point. And if you can just wait for the trend, um, to, to confirm your idea that, uh, this extreme, when everyone has bought something, there's nobody left to buy, right? I mean, that's the simplest idea or if everyone sold the opposite. Um, so in the case of treasuries, it was really a sentiment trade. We just saw an extreme where everyone said, well, gee, if the Fed's raising rates, uh, treasury rates have to go up too. I mean, there were other factors, you know, that, that's Trump election and, and, uh, optimism and this and that. But uh, um, so we entered the trade and it's actually been a great trade because who would bet on lower interest rates when the Fed is saying we are raising interest rates? And we did. And, and it's been a 
It's been a great trade for us, but uh, yeah, I like to look at uh, commitment of traders as a, as a sentiment example, but only when the commitment of traders reaches an extreme. And, and with treasuries, we've done some studies here too, but investing when, uh, you know, 10 or 30 years are in large drawdowns or high percent drawdowns is actually uh, historically been a great trade, you know, for a year on out to get high treasury returns. And that was a s- setup that coincided very much similar with with what commitment of traders was saying in that. Um, you know, you can bet at, at times for treasuries to mean revert when they've had a, a pretty nasty period. Um, we'll link to that in the show notes if I dig it up. So any, um, before we move on to kind of um, foreign investments, which we'll talk about in a minute, you know, you've talked a lot about housing and whether that's single family homes and how to get exposure to that asset class, as well as actually you know, advising um, investors over the past seven, eight years to, as this is one of the best times to invest in housing as well as buying a house or even speculating on land. I think you you even bought some land in Florida. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your thesis on housing is and update it to kind of where where we are today. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, what I like to invest personally in are what I call fat pitches. You know, it's uh, where you, you can there's there's no way to go wrong in it. And in 2011, I bought I bought some land in Florida, like you said, as an example. Um, uh, the property was previously under contract for 14.4 million in 2009. I offered 750 thousand dollars on it in uh, 2011. The bank that the bank that had been foreclosed, the bank that was stuck with it, uh, countered at $900,000 and I took it. So I, in, in 18 months, this property lost you know, essentially over 90% of its value. You know, that was just, that was never going to happen. That was basically a market with no bid, uh, the housing market in Florida at the time. And so, uh, I, I invested personally aggressively in, um, in Florida real estate. And those times are obviously gone right now. Um, I mean, Florida real estate is, 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 is back in a big way. Uh, but what's missing from Florida real estate, and I'm using Florida real estate as a proxy for the nation. Um, but it, Florida's where I live. What's missing here is, um, housing supply. And basically the housing starts are nowhere near where they need to be to equalize supply and demand. And it's not just a Florida story. If you look at the national numbers on, um, on housing supply, you know, housing starts. Basically, we are not starting enough homes. Um, and again, this is, this is economics 101. What happens if there's not enough supply to meet, to meet demand? Uh, prices go up, of course. So in my, uh, like I said, you want to just come break it down to the simplest factor, um, the most important thing. And right now, every, nothing's in people's way of buying a house. I mean, mortgage rates are, are low. Um, you know, people can get, people can get a mortgage if they need it, uh, but there's no supply. And, uh, so I think, um, I, I, and you can't believe I live near Jacksonville, Florida. I think the on Zillow, you could take a look, but I think the the average or median, whatever Zillow uses, is about one hundred and forty thousand dollars for the average Jacksonville home, which is probably a three bedroom, two bath house with a two car garage and a yard. And and uh, you know, you travel anywhere in the world. I was in um, Beijing, and if you want an apartment in Beijing, you can't. You'll get a dump for a million bucks. And uh, Hong Kong's more than that. Uh, Vancouver, you 
can't get a house for, you can't get anything for less than a million dollars Canadian in Vancouver. So when you look at U.S. home prices, it's it's no surprise why, why foreigners are buying here, why I see there's still plenty of upside. I think Florida, California might be a different story for you, Meb, uh, but uh, the rest of the nation, I think, is uh, still an incredible value. Maybe we're in the, so, say, fifth or sixth inning of, of that as opposed to, um, it's not the beginning, but it's not the end for sure. It's very localized, like you mentioned. And so, you know, we've had Jared Dillian on the podcast who talked a lot about Canadian real estate bubble. And you see things like the euphoria where you're not seeing here and certainly not in stocks, but having lived through enough bubbles and and you as well, I'm sure the signs are familiar. I mean, he was just sending out a, a tweet about, you know, Canadian get rich uh, real estate conference headlined by Tony Robbins and Pitbull. And, oh, and, and by the time Tony Robbins and Pitbull are doing a real estate get rich conference, you know, th- that, that's a coincident sign that things are crazy. Um, we're, we're a little frustrated because it, it has gone crazy here, uh, where we live in, in Manhattan Beach, California. And we live in, we, we have a, a per, you know, standard office here. We're, we're budget guys. We're value guys. And, um, I'm laughing because there's a open house tonight for what we call it our, our kind of dream office. It's right on the pier overlooking the surf, but was listed at three times what we pay now. Um, wow. and so it sat empty for a year and then, you know, where we are in the cycle, someone eventually picked it up, which was just a dagger in my heart. Cause I was so, cause I like you was putting in these low balls. So <laughs> there's definitely landlords and realtors around the country that probably hate Steve and I, and just people on Craigslist in general. Cause I was putting in low balls, this landlord every month. I said, man, this is empty. Come on, you're just burning money. And then someone eventually came and pay for it. And the worst part about it now is that the company that moved in and that is having the uh, open house tonight is also named Cambria. It's, no, a, that's funny. it's, it's a granite tabletop company. Uh, the only beauty though is that the Cambria, um, they have huge signage everywhere and they sponsor like almost every sports event in the country. So they must be doing well, but it never says what their company is. So hopefully we're just getting a little name recognition in town now. Everyone's just saying they, they think that's our Cambry. And when, and when they fold and move out, hopefully we'll, we'll take that's over right. the Perfect. office. To keep exactly. The signage. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah, real estate's interesting. And so you've mentioned, I know in the past, some sort of mortgage ETFs as a way to play it as well. Some of the single family uh, stock companies, whether it's, it's been, gosh, I'm trying to remember the name, Silver Bay or Two Harbors or those a couple of them that, yeah, that plays. Yeah. Um, yep. Okay, so uh, moving on from housing and thinking about that, spoken from a from a happy renter, by the way. Let's move on. So I'm looking at your current recommended list, and of the 15, 20 odd positions, there's some very common themes, and one of the the, the biggest common theme um, is foreign equities. And finally, this is a world where it looks to me like the value and trend is lining up. We've been talking about foreign stocks for the past four years about them being cheap, but until really last summer, maybe kind of when interest rates bottom in the U S you hadn't seen the foreign stock outperformance. Why don't you start to tell us a little bit about your thesis um, on why there's, you know, so much in the, in the, the kind of foreign space. And then we'll drill down a little more specific into a, a couple of areas that I know you're, you're, uh, very bullish on. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a simple story, and uh, Meb, you do this work literally as well as anyone on earth, but uh, I mean, look, emerging markets, uh, what is it, uh, seven years of flat performance or something, I don't have it in front of me, versus the S&P's almost straight vertical performance. I mean, the the, the outperformance of the S&P or the underperformance of emerging slash, slash foreign is, uh, is incredible. And uh, so obviously, it creates some value, it, it creates a degree of... Uh, Hated's not the right word, but just uh, people have just given up. They've just thrown in the towel. And a lot of times uh, ignored is is even better than hated uh, just because absolutely no one's in. No one's even thinking about it. Um, Meanwhile, this is where this is the growth engine of this is where, you know, you're going to see faster growth in these countries than you will. Um, in the U.S. Uh, for sure. And so uh, there are moments I started out specializing in foreign stocks as a broker. And, you know, I started in 1993. And I think uh, Mark Mobius's Templeton Emerging Market Fund went up 100% that year. And, and uh, it was just euphoria over emerging market stocks. And it seems to come and go. And people think China's uh, going to... Uh, you know, take over the world and then people forget about China completely. People think Chinese stocks are great and you have to own them. People think uh, there's no reason that you would ever own them. And you just kind of end up kind of playing that, uh, that uh, love and hate, that, uh, that bipolar uh, investor opinion on these things because the, the countries don't change so much. It's, it's, it's the investor sentiment that changes. And so if you can just play that a bit, uh, you can actually do extremely well. Well, let's, let's talk about China because I know you've spent a ton of time in China traveling there. I think you're going there again this summer. I've actually never been. I've been to Hong Kong, but, but I don't know how much that really counts. But you spent a lot of time in China and it was maybe last year or even two years ago where you and I were speaking at a conference and you pulled me aside. We were sitting by a um, by a cocktail reception, and you said, "Meb, I let's I want to talk about this story. I'm really excited about this China story. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about what you told me then, and kind of what you've learned since, and and what your thesis is on China." Yeah, so China is an incredible opportunity. It's it is one of these fat pitches, and uh, I've only had a few of them in the last uh, decade, like two or three. So there are so many opportunities. I think the story that I may have told you was I, I went to my first meeting, and uh, I, I just realized that China was actually so far ahead of the states in one particular area, and I, I didn't see it coming. But uh, a woman was doing everything on her phone, and uh, literally everything, and and uh, the guy that we were traveling over there with said, Steve, do you have WeChat yet? And um, I said, WeChat? He said, yeah, you'll need it. It's kind of like Skype over there. You'll need it. And I said, I, I don't need a, I don't need a messaging. I don't need Skype. I mean, but then I learned very quickly that uh, if you want to call somebody on the phone, you don't call them on their phone number. You reach them by WeChat. It's almost like a Facebook messenger thing was my first, my first thought of what this was. But then I, I later understood that the, the people of China, basically their entire, in two years, their entire life moved from uh, sort of the way we live now to having everything on their phone um, in, to a degree that we can't even uh, fathom here in the States. Um, 900 million Chinese use uh, WeChat and 50% of them use it um, for 90 minutes a day and send 75 different uh, WeChat messages a day. So it is, it is completely taken over China's lives. But the, the WeChat does so many things uh, one of the very unique things and very interesting things that really facebook hasn't or no one in the states has really implemented is a payment system 
where instead of paying with dollars or paying with your Visa card, you actually just kind of zing people money by WeChat and people prefer to pay with their cell phone than any other means. And so, like I said, I was in this meeting, first meeting with a major um, uh, sort of mutual fund company in China and the I asked the, the, the woman, um, the chief investment officer, if she uh, actually used um, cash or a credit card for anything. And she said that she only uses uh, her cell phone. She doesn't carry a purse. She doesn't carry cash. I said, is there anything in this world where you don't use just your cell phone for? And she said, my parking lot attendant only takes cash. And every month I, I berate him to start taking, uh, uh, you know, mobile payments. And it was just a, an entire revolution in China that uh, we can't even fathom here in the States. And so to me, I came home uh, thinking that, wow, the parent company of WeChat, which is called Tencent, is actually going to become the world's largest company. Um, so that's one theme of, of this uh, that kind of blew my mind. And it's, it's quickly starting to happen here uh, more so in the States. So one theme in China is really this, uh, man, they're, they're ahead of us, uh, shockingly. It took no time at all. And, and they do not want to use money like we do, um, or use a cell phone like we do. They're not tied to their old banking system or their old phone provider. Um, they, they don't use the mobile network like we do. They want to use Wi-Fi and just contact you on WeChat. If you're in a taxi, the taxi has Wi-Fi and you can talk on WeChat, uh, to business contacts. I mean, it's a, anyway, that, that's just one little, uh, slight of what's happening in China. Um, from an investor perspective, it's incredibly exciting. Uh, first of all, it's super cheap, but there are two actual catalysts that are once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. So the, the, the short version of why they're cheap in a sentence is that uh, the Hang Seng China Enterprises Index, which is the major Chinese companies, it's at a forward PE of seven and one times book value. So uh, that's about as cheap as anywhere on earth. And these are some of literally the world's largest companies in this index. So Chinese stocks are incredibly cheap. Those are the ones that are, the ones I mentioned are Chinese stocks listed in Hong Kong. Uh, but there's a, there's a much bigger story going on that uh, no one, shockingly, no one is talking about. And Meb, you, you will know this story better than most, but I think that uh, hardly anyone is up on this story. And it's the basic idea that, look, China is the world's second largest economy. And when you add up the Shanghai and Shenzhen stock exchanges, China is the world's second largest stock market. Now, where in the global stock market indexes are the Shenzhen and Shanghai stock exchanges? Where is China's stock market in the global um, indexes? Meb, what percentage of uh, you know the world index? If China is the second largest country in the world, what percentage of the world index is made up by local Chinese stocks? You're saying what should it be or what is it? What, what, is, it, it? what is it? What is it? What is it now? It's, it's, I, I think I already know A the shares. answer, but it's it's basically nothing, right? That's right. It's it's nothing. It's li- so you have the world's second largest economy, the world's second largest stock market, the A share market for Chinese stocks, and zero percent of them are in the in the world indexes. Now, what do you think the likelihood that that will continue? What do you think the likelihood of that is? Same, same I mean, number, zero. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, so, so here we are. We have a one. What if, if I just, you know, if you just, uh, if I just said to you, Meb, um, 
look, the world's second, let's say it's not China. Let's say it was, uh, Germany is not in the global indexes, Meb, but it's going to be added and Germany's going to make up, uh, I don't know, 15%. We'll just make up a number. And so Germany's going to go from 0% of a global index to 15% of a global index. So then what would happen to German stocks? Well, I'll give you, they're going to go up a lot. And I'll give you a great example is that anytime things get added to the S&P. So if you remember when Berkshire got added to the S&P, it went up like 15% before it actually got added. So as people, everyone, every tracking index had to start buying it. And that's actually the dirty secret of indexing is, is a lot of names that come in um once once they get added you know there's a lot of run up uh up to that period so yes i would th- i would think german stocks would go up a lot yeah well, i mean we're not just adding one stock to an index i mean we are adding the entire market to you know to a major major index and it's not just you know emerging market indexes need this china indexes need this uh world indexes need this um it is going to be a movement in the hundreds of billions of dollars into chinese stocks and the thing is is that people are going to have to buy them etfs index funds um anybody tracking you know ms emerging, MS, anybody tracking this stuff, whether or not Chinese stocks are a good value, these funds are going to have to own these particular stocks. So my suggestion, my fat pitch is get yourself there first. And thankfully, we can actually get in incredibly cheaply right now. So this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You know that hundreds of billions of dollars are going to flow in. Now, look, it's not going to happen in a day. Uh, MSCI recognizes that, uh, I mean, this is a dam that needs to, that needs to burst. And uh, what they'd rather do is uh, let the, let the money trickle in. But I think over the course of roughly five years, it'll go from no stake to its full stake in these indexes. So you have a five-year, few hundred billion dollar tailwind as you're buying one of the planet's cheapest markets. Let, let, let me give you an interesting data point. And I, I remember talking about this on Twitter. And so this is a couple years ago. This is the end of 2015. And... I was tweeting about China and I said, this is the cheapest the stock market been is in a, in a decade. And I just started getting the nastiest responses and emails as a sign of like, you know, people really hating Chinese stocks. But if you go back and then I eventually posted a, a chart of 10 year PE ratios on the China stock market, you know, people forget that. In the mid-2000s, when everyone was clamoring for emerging markets because they'd been outperforming, so Everett, all the money was chasing it. All the stories were about how, uh, you know, all the same data points we have today, but that emerging markets were growing faster, that there are a huge portion of world population, that the BRICs were emerging in China and India specifically. Well, China got to a P.E. ratio of 60 in 2007. And so that's a legit bubble. Um, the U.S. only hit 45 in the late 90s. Japan hit the highest we've ever seen, which was in the 90s and in the 80, um, 80s. But so China hit this huge value. And so it's taken them forever to work that off. But I tweeted and I said, hey, look, you know, 2007, China hit a CAPE ratio of 62. At the bottom in 09, it hit 17. So right back to normal price. In 2013, it hit a low of 12. But still, it had only increased to a value, and this is in 2015, 
of of around 15 and i'd have to check what it is today but i know it's in in late 2015 it hit a value of around 12 so i know it's in the low teens but it just goes to show when you're talking about sentiment there's a lot of positives lining up on this trade which are all the positive demographics and and economic side but also that it's not particularly liked you know it's kind of in this hated category where i get flamed if i tweet about it um, oh, that's great. I love it. <laughs> so, so it's a long-term play. So how do people go about it? Is, do they, um, I know you've talked about the crane shares funds in the past. What, what are some other, like what, what, what's the way to place this trade? Is it through ETFs? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a challenge. So, um, you know, you and I can't buy easily buy a shares ourselves and, uh, man, I think the right way to do it, you mentioned crane shares, the crane shares guys have been out in front of this, um, and they actually created an ETF that is, uh, it, that holds what will be bought, um, by all of, so this is, the, this is, um, you know, the, the word front running is, uh, might, might be the wrong word to use. I don't know if it is or not, but I mean, if you want to get out ahead of this trade, um, Crane shares actually. So, so what happened was MSCI came out with essentially their roadmap, um, to, um, you know, to, to inclusion is the word they use. And, uh, to me, uh, a couple years ago when they put this out, they actually gave the specific allocations of the stocks. So to me, I don't know, Meb, if, uh, you're a bit younger than me. Uh, did you ever see the teacher's manual when you were growing up in school where it had the, there's, the, there's your textbook and then there was the teacher's edition that had all of the answers. To, That's right. The I haven't even thought about that. I, yeah. They, they, the same textbook and then the answers were usually in red. Yeah, exactly. So, so, um, not only do we have the textbook, but MSCI had actually put out the teacher's edition. And I don't know if this was on accident because they don't have it in their current versions of the inclusion stuff, but they actually gave you, um, you know, the cliffs, the teacher's edition, the, the actual answers as to what their allocations were going to be. And, uh, Crane Shares built an ETF, um, not on what the allocations are looking backwards, but what they will be. And, uh, it's, uh, KBA is the symbol of that one. And so, uh, to me, that's the simplest way to, um, to, to take advantage of this particular trade. But I also like if, you know, that KBA is the, is the symbol of the ETF. But I actually just like owning even FXI, simple FXI is, a, is a great, um, is a, is a great way to play this as well. And I know that sounds funny, but w- so what FXI is, it basically holds the Hong Kong listed uh, Chinese blue chips. And these are the behemoths of China and 10 cents, the top holding in China construction bank and, and uh, um, really massive uh, businesses. But these are all still part of um, the inclusion process. These are going to be the benchmark stocks of China. And uh, this is, there's, a weird thing, Meb. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of it, but uh, um, the AH premium. Are you familiar with the AH premium? Yeah, but why don't you explain it to our uh, listeners? Yeah, so um, this is crazy, and, and Meb, I'm sure you'd agree. So in in China, in the A shares, the identical company, literally everything about it is the same. The, the stock is identical, trading in Hong Kong and trading in China. 
And uh, right now, the AH, the AH premium, as it's called, is at about 20%. So the same identical stock trading in China is 20% more expensive than that stock trading in Hong Kong, the identical shares. And so by buying FXI, you're buying these same identical stocks, but you're buying them at, at, at a huge discount. I mean, when do you get a chance to buy um, global blue chips, legitimate stocks at uh, 20% discount to their, you know, their other holdings or whatnot. It's, uh, you know, to the identical shares. So you would think that there would be some sort of uh, arbitrage happening um, in these shares. And that arbitrage, in my mind, uh, to me, this is the biggest anomaly in finance, and it will go away soon. So um, you can buy KBA as as a way to play the A shares. But uh, FXI actually holds many of the same companies that are going to be part of uh, MSCI's inclusion. They just happen to be the Hong Kong listed versions of the identical stock. So we can buy them at a discount count there. I'm just just uh, th- throwing that out as an idea, a very simple, very common way. Um, that might be easier for, um, you know, if, if, if some of your listeners or fund managers some, or something uh, uh, might be easier f- for them to get through their investment committee to buy uh, something like FXI. And aren't, aren't you getting ready to go back to China this summer? I am. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I, I just, um, the opportunity is too extraordinary and, um, I'm, I'm killing a bunch of birds, uh, with one stone there. I feel like I want my subscribers, my customers to actually see what I saw for myself with WeChat and with sort of the technological revolution. Because when you see it for yourself in China, you see what's possible here. And then you reach basically this new sort of thesis for the U.S. that basically we're going to enter a world where there's only a couple companies that matter, you know, and I realized that sort of Facebook and Google and Amazon and these, these sort of masters of the universe already seem like they've soared so much and how much more can they soar. But what you see in China is, for example, there is no room for a Pepsi. Like WeChat had that, you know, it's Coke or nothing. Uh, what I mean by that is WeChat there is no second place. No one wants to be on a separate network. Does, does that make sense? Like yeah. no one. So, um, and so just like in the States where, uh, we, Google has 77% of, uh, global market search, global internet search, and Bing has 7%. There isn't room for second place. Facebook, who wants to be on a different network than Facebook or Instagram or, or, you know, I mean, obviously there's, there's Snapchat and such, but the point is, is that these, these companies like WeChat in, in China, and I just fully, uh, I got it in China is that Facebook and Google are, are able to gather such an incredible amount of information about you and me for free. And then they can use sort of machine learning and artificial intelligence to absolutely make the most out of that data set, whether it's serving up ads for you and making more money off ad revenue to, uh, to selling the results of their data, um, you know, for, for a variety of different reasons. So, um, so my trip to China actually reinforced, um, that if we have this melt up, as I've described it, Meb, I actually believe that these big, big tech names will be, uh, big winners in the melt up, even at their current valuations. I think there's, there's still room for them to go much higher. So I didn't mean to get off of the China theme, but, uh, no, it's that's good. I mean, it's, you know, people talk a lot about the first trillion dollar company and usually the names bandied about or, Apple and Amazon and everything. So it'll be interesting to see if it ends up being a, a Chinese tech company or, or what it might be. Um, 
Yeah. Um, I wanted to touch on <clears throat> one more thing before we start to wind down. I mean, we've, we've, man, burned through an hour almost already. Uh, this, <laughs> this, this could go yeah. on forever, which is great. Um, I know you think a lot about, real assets and commodities and over the years have recommended, you know, investing in, in various ways, whether it's been actually gold coins or through the St. Gaudens or through, um, even positions, you know, recently such as, you know, miners or gold shares. What, what's your general perspective on real assets? Um, you know, is it the same exact framework you're looking for? Is it slightly different and kind of the role that they play in a portfolio for you? Yeah, I, I know that, uh, it might, uh, it might make some, uh, some gold bugs mad, but, uh, it's just another asset class. It's just another one to find, uh, sort of cheap and hated and, and, and in an uptrend. And, uh, it was funny. I was asked to speak at, uh, uh, Rick Rule's big, um, um, Sprott, uh, natural investing, um, symposium in Vancouver last year. And I, I stood up on the stage. It was, uh, late July into July and, I think I might have been the first speaker at this conference. And I, I, first thing I said was I told everybody in the room, I just sold all of my gold stocks yesterday. And, uh, you know, so basically I'm, uh, it's, it's, it's like being a church and telling everybody there's no, no God or something. Uh, it was, uh, you know, people couldn't stand it to end, but it was exactly the right thing to do. I mean, it, I nailed the peak in uh, gold stocks. Um, but before then, in about January, I, I bought, I'd never really bought gold, gold stocks in my career personally, which sounds crazy from a newsletter writer, right? But, uh, uh, I'm just looking for a great value, a fat pitch, uh, an extraordinary moment. And I hadn't seen that extraordinary moment until sort of January of 2016. I bought heavily and then I sold heavily in July. Haven't really been back that much. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it was an extraordinary, it's just, it's just another asset class. I, I know that I've, I've done a lot in collectibles and a lot in, um, in, um, you know, all kinds of things that normal, uh, investors aren't looking at. Uh, but, uh, it's really just trying to find, uh, another great value. Um, you know, I was thinking cause I had Van on last week and we, and we were talking a lot about rare coins and ideas and it's not an area that, I, I've really spent much time with historically, but I, I chatted with Van to to get a a starter allocation up and running. But so he is talking a little bit, and I, I see kind of you've mentioned, um, and I may pronounce it wrong. Saint Saint Gaudens is that how you say it? Right, right. Um, yep. MS sixty five, and you've talked about that as a way to play gold, where these coins traditionally have a premium to kind of the melt value that in bull markets with gold can get really high but right now is it one of the lower premiums in a while can can you talk about your thesis there at all yeah absolutely so um so what i'd like and and uh, as any good investor you would like to have limited downside and uh if there's a way to improve your upside but keep your downside the same um i'm interested and so um with gold and with st gaudens coins they are at their record low premiums relative to the price of gold so um so what happens is if gold goes down, the St. Gaudens coins go down by about the same amount. So you have a one for one on the downside. Does that make sense? Yep. Um, but on the upside, um, I mean, we've seen these, these particular coins rise. I mean, hundreds of percent, even a thousand percent. Um, so it's, it's really just a, um, 
just the idea of having limited downside, unlimited upside. So, for example, an MS65, um, St. Gaudens coin today sells, uh, you know, it depends on, it depends on a couple things, but let's say it's around 1800 bucks. It's, it's not a huge premium over the price of gold, but they are premium coins. They are rare. And these coins could rise dramatically based on if, if they do anything like they've done in history. So, um, so what I like about them is uh, they sort of have one-for-one one downside, basically with the price of gold, but you have uh, multiples on the upside. It's almost like a leveraged ETF where you get double long upside, but your downside is one-for-one. One. So well, I, uh, wonder, uh, I wonder if you couldn't structure a trade, and I'm just thinking out loud here, and I don't know anything about this area, where you buy a basket of these coins. So let's say you buy a million bucks of these coins, and... With the knowledge that of the trade thesis you just outlined. And I wonder if you couldn't short out some of the exposure to the price of gold through the futures, because the gold curve, to my knowledge right now, is in contango. So if you shorted the 2017 or 2020 gold futures, you would get a roll down in yield, um, a roll down in price. So you would get a, a positive roll yield from that um, investment. And so, or, or buy, I don't know what the options would trade at, but you could buy, buy puts options on the future. I wonder if there isn't a way to structure that trade where you would have potentially lim- even more limited downside to the price of gold, but a, um, a high multiple expansion to the, to the common kind of like almost like a buying a free call option. Um, we, we may have to do some work on that. We'll, 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 yeah. We'll, I mean, my thought was my, th- I mean, I, I think it's an interesting idea, but then you're just only exposing yourself. I mean, it's a great idea, but you're only exposing yourself to the upside of the coin. And, and, uh, I'm not calling myself an expert on the, on the upside of the coin, but, um, if I want to be long gold, this is an interesting way to do it where, it could go one for one upside, but it could go two for one or three for one on the upside. So um, I would rather still maintain my exposure to gold in the coin. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, sorry, this is a random tangent. We'll have to do some work on that and report back, listeners. No, but by the way, you talked absolutely. I'm glad I, I was able to introduce you to Van all those years ago. There is nobody that's more of a walking encyclopedia of how to make money in uh, alternative assets than that guy. And uh, I, I hope that uh, you were able to learn something from him. Uh, the I, stories I learned, that he tells. I, I learn yeah. something from Van every time I talk to him, even when he stopped in just to say hi for dinner um, when I was out with some friends the other night, and we started talking about pocket knives and probably would have talked about an encyclopedic knowledge of pocket knives for about an hour. But yeah, Jeff, my, my co-host and I are going to head down to Long Beach probably next week to to make some initial purchases of, of some coins for, for my starter collection. So we'll, awesome. we'll post those in awesome. the show notes when we, when we pick them up. Um, awesome. Let's start to wind down with a few shorter questions. Uh, and speaking of collectibles, I, I, actually, I'll have one more real quick one before we get into the shorter questions. You know, some of your passions that don't have anything to do with markets, you know, speaking of a collector, um, talk a little bit about what, what your, uh, you collect some interesting objects, both in the surf and music scene. Are there any, um, in particular items that, that stand out in your mind? Um, you know, I, I mean, a lot of times there are some great stories. I mean, uh, uh, just where it came from and, uh, um, you know, a, a, a guy that uh, owns a music store not far from here, he said, Steve, uh, he knew the guitars that I liked. He said, Steve, this guitar, came, he said, he's a legend. He, he did, uh, 
he did some guitars for Eric Clapton and, and Keith Richards and and uh, super legendary guy. And he said, Steve, you got to get down here. And he didn't tell me what what it was, but I knew it was going to be something important. And basically, I ended up buying a guitar that that came in from a little old lady. I paid $30,000 for it, and uh, the guy couldn't believe I paid $30,000 uh, for the guitar. And then uh, I owned it. It was a Larson Brothers guitar, which uh, most people aren't, aren't familiar with. But uh, uh, And then it was such in, in such perfect condition that I, I didn't even want to play this darn thing. So I ended up selling it uh, through Groon Guitars in Nashville for $72,000, I think. You know where these things come from, and the stories of how you end up acquiring them, and and what you end up doing with them. Um, it's it's been a fun ride learning about collectibles, but I've also learned, and and Meb, I'm sure you can appreciate this on uh, liquidity and illiquidity. And one of the things that I really love, for example, about Timberland is I feel like you get paid a massive yield, but you're buying illiquidity. And I thought for a while that by buying illiquidity, I was buying. Um, higher yields. Uh, does that make sense? I don't mm-hmm. know if you... Mm-hmm. And uh, But I learned through uh, buying particularly illiquid uh, investments cheap is that uh, you still need to find a buyer, you know? And uh, so one thing, if anybody's in considering getting into f- collectibles, whether it's, uh, you know, sports cars or whatever it is, is you don't necessarily want... If you're really going to buy it to, with the intention that someday you're going to sell it, um, you really need to buy something that someone else actually wants. It's a crazy thought, but for example, if there are 30 Mercedes Gullwings, for example, then there's a known market for the Mercedes Gullwing and there's a known buy and sell spread. But if you have the uh, prototype to me, that sounds sexier. Like, wow, not only, you don't, this is before the 30 that everybody's aware of, but the way collectibles markets work, it's pretty strange that uh, the prototype may be worth significantly less than the ones that everybody's already familiar with. And uh, even though it may be cooler to you or me, the collectibles markets don't work that way. They want illiquidity. They want familiarity. Um, but for me, yeah, uh, going back to what I've done, um, you know, I've built a, some, some, a collection of... Uh, some of the finest uh, vintage surfboards, uh, starting from the ancient, uh, you know, the early Hawaiians up to present, and uh, man, it's just really the, the stories are extraordinary. But I don't, I don't know how interested investors uh, would be in them. It's a lot of fun, and and uh, but it did teach me lessons for the financial markets, like for example with Timberland, where buying illiquidity isn't necessarily a a, uh, a path to higher investment returns. I, I have a great example of illiquidity sitting in my driveway right now. If any of you listeners want to buy a 1967 Toyota Land Cruiser that <laughs> is, is also a good example of uh, money pit investments, you know, restoring vintage cars or boats. Um, those are kind of the opposite end of the old... Uh, uh, you know, eighty twenty rule, but but it's a lot of well, that. that comes- that's a no, that's a cool car, man. Now, have you thought about like, have you seen the icon? Isn't icon? Uh, oh out man, in, uh- the icon. So I had mine restored by the same company, which is in the Valley in Los Angeles, and the icon for listeners who don't know that's kind of a from scratch restoration of a, a Land Cruiser FJ forty, which is the Jeep body style. It, it, they go for like 150 grand. And so that, that is, um, and, and believe me, I about once a month search the internet for uh, used icons for sale because, like I said, I'm, I'm a cheap bastard and would love to put in a low bid. But, um, mine is, is a kind of the similar, you know, has old Corvette engine and, and modern components, but, 
um, unfortunately it's, uh, it's, I think it's run its course as a, as a favor investment. Um, okay. but I love it. I only drive two miles to work anyway, so there's not a whole, not a whole lot of driving going on. Um, Sounds Steve, cool. you've been writing for man, almost two decades now. What has been your most memorable investment or trade in that period? You can take some time to think about it, but and it could be a good trade, it could be a bad trade, but is there one that kind of jumps out at you? You know, I thought you might ask like what was my what was sort of my worst trade, but you're you're too polite for that. No, but that's what you came can to ask mind. that too. You yeah, that's that what too. came that that's what came to mind. So, uh, so uh, you know, I mean, this was. I'm going to share my worst trade. I mean, I've I've had a lot of uh, um, uh, you know successful trades obviously but uh my worst trade uh it was uh it was it was buying um uh putin had come out and said that uh, i am not going to bankrupt yukos i have no intention of bankrupting yukos the big oil company what he wanted was to put kodorkovsky the outspoken leader of yukos in prison and he did he he made up some bogus charges and put uh, kodorkovsky in prison and he came out and said i have no intention of bankrupting yukos and yukos was trading it like two times earnings. And I'm, I don't mean like two times earnings. It was trading for two times earnings. And, uh, so what's your downside in buying, uh, you know, one of these massive Russian oil companies at two times earnings when the president, the only guy who would basically say we are, um, the only guy who had an interest in bankrupting Yukos says, I'm not going to bankrupt Yukos. So what I did, Mab, was I trusted a politician. And uh, fortunately, when we bought the stock at two times earnings, no kidding, I put a 50% trailing stop on this. I said, I, I thought, there's no way this is going to happen, but it is a Russian stock. It could be extremely volatile. We put the widest stop I've ever put on anything, which is 50% on Yukos. And sure enough, Yukos went right to 50%. We stopped out and I said, I was, I felt terrible for my, uh, for my subscribers, felt like I'd let them down and how foolish was I to trust the words of a politician and and uh yukos actually um it went all the way putin bankrupted yukos he, he you know um well i mean the, so that was that's the most that may be the most uh it may not be the most memorable but it's surely impactful and i think you learn you probably learn more from your losers than your winners right because you, you dig in and say what did i do wrong and uh so i think that one's uh that one's a good one for you, you know it's funny that's it's a question we don't um, give the the uh, podcast guests ahead of time. If they listen to our podcast, obviously they would hear it. But it's so funny because you ask if you're like, what's your worst investment? Almost every person, there's this pause and then almost just this like sigh, right? There's just this visceral feeling of pain. I mean, I can think back to my worst trades and anyone who's been through it, you know, you learn that's a that's a very physical experience, the real physical pain of losing money or doing something really stupid. Um, and it sticks with you. And hopefully, listeners, you make those mistakes when you're young and don't have any money or um, not with much money. But it, it's something that's probably the most useful um, educational tool out there, uh, rather than the opposite, which is, um, getting really lucky when you're young and, uh, and then making the dumb mistakes later. Steve, um, on, on one kind of related question, and then we're going to wind down what, you know, for, for someone who's been interacting with 
hundreds of thousands of subscribers over the years, if not millions, and a lot tend to be individuals. What kind of advice would would you give to the listeners of this podcast that you kind of see as the common mistakes that most of these investors make that would probably be easy to correct if you know, I know you mentioned trailing stops, um, but but uh, what what would kind of be your advice that's reflective of you know the the feedback you get from from subscribers over the past twenty years? I mean, it's 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 really always the same thing, and it's that individual investors um, let their losers ride and cut their winners, and uh, it's shocking that uh, it's so challenging to learn. The best thing I can do when I hire new people is to tell them don't open an account, that, because you, to, basically they need to learn. Uh, what's right and know it down in their bones before they start trading because as soon as people start investing their own money or trading and, and they don't already have this idea of don't let a small loss become a big one and don't cut your winners early. It's, I would say that's the biggest thing that individual investors have, have a hard time with and it's crushing. Um, look, uh, Meb, we're looking at China. I don't mind. Look, China rose by triple digit percentage gains three separate times since 2006. So, um, there is a strong likelihood that China starting at a single digit multiple on HSCEI, there's a strong likelihood that sometime in the next five years, we're going to see a triple digit gain in China. Let's say that you buy today and you cut your loss loss at 15% or something if we're wrong. And then you buy again and you cut your loss again at 10% or something if you're wrong. And then you buy a third time and you make 150% gain because you, so what we did there is we cut our losses early and we let our winner ride. And that is the correct way, in my opinion, uh, and in my experience to, to make money. But most, most of the, the biggest problem is letting small losses become big losses. Even in the case of that uh, Putin example, I cut my loss at a massive 50% loss, you say, geez, I'm already down 50%. Why would I, why, why don't I just see how this thing plays out? And, uh, but, uh, you know, we live to, we live to fight another day. So I hope, I hope that answer is, uh, no, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a perfect example. And I think it's, it's great advice is the, the, the most important lesson in investing and trading is simply survival. And so many investors, they have a stop loss. It just happens to be zero. And so, right. you know, they'll, they'll, the behavioral research shows, you know, it's exactly, and you could just walk people through this example. They buy something at a hundred and it goes down to 80 and you're saying, ah, oh, that's stupid. I should have waited a month. And then it goes down to 60 and you're like, oh, I'm an idiot for listening to my broker friend. I'm going to sell it when it gets back to 80. And of course, what does it do? It goes down to 40. And you say, oh, you don't even open your statements. You you just don't even think about it anymore. You're pissed off. And it goes to 20. And then at that point, you say, well, there's no point selling it now because what's the point? I you know lost most of my money. And then it goes to zero. And so you've started to see, by the way, over the past few years, a lot of research on individual securities come out. Longboard did this originally, and I know Goldman and JP Morgan, and then there's an academic paper recently about the distribution of stock returns. And so um, it's something like two-thirds of stocks underperform a broad index, roughly half of stocks um, have a zero rate of return, and it's something like 20% essentially go to zero. And these aren't micro caps. This is like Russell 2000, 2000 wow. biggest stocks in the US. But the, the very small percent 
you know, and this is one reason why indexing work and another reason why trend following works is these big winners make up for all the losers. But it also goes to show why stock picking is so hard because the chances are, you know, you're going to pick the losers um, and, and the really bad losers. So having the stop loss on all those stocks that or investments that may do poorly and letting the big winners ride. And we'll post these in the show notes because these are some of the most important studies I've seen. Um, I think that's just a statistical um, verification for, for what you're talking about right now. Yeah, I mean, I think my my personal outperformance comes down to a few great, um, uh, you know, a, a few great winners that I actually let ride, and uh, the rest of it is kind of treading water. And if you never let yourself get those few great winners, you are not going to outperform. Yeah, I mean, chances I, are you're going to underperform. So. I was looking at the Stansbury Hall of Fame trades, and you're you're sitting on top with number one is probably because the the rest of the guys would have would have sold those big winners when they hit 100, 200 percent. But you know, knowing you, it probably uh, probably was it was a trailing stop loss. Yep, exactly right. It was. I think the stock was up like thirteen hundred percent, and we had a twenty five percent trailing stop on it, and we we pocketed a nine hundred ninety five percent gain. Oh, that's and funny. that was after giving back some, you know. So that's funny, so, Steve. This has been a blast. If uh, listeners want to follow you um, in your research, where do they go? I mean, the easiest thing is dailywealth.com. It's free. And, uh, you know, there's a huge archive over many years of free, good stuff. You'll see Meb's name in there a lot. And uh, yeah, check out dailywealth.com. Great. Look, Steve, it's been a blast. I'm looking forward to catching up with you again uh, sometime soon. In the coming years, we'll have you back on the program to see how this whole China story is playing out. Yeah, we got to get you in the water one of these days here, Meb. You know, my my surfing is so relative to simply who's nearby and drags me into the water. I actually just went to Hawaii um, a few weeks ago, uh, about a month ago or two months ago, and have some local friends there that took me out to some of the local surf breaks. And I was out of shape and pathetic. And I'm a terrible surfer anyway. Great skier, terrible surfer. But no, it's, uh, it, it takes it takes a long time to learn. But man, I'm glad you just get out. It's 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 extraordinary all the things that you manage to squeeze in and your busy travel schedule and all the extraordinary work you're doing. So well, surfing is a great yeah. humbling, you know. That's it's yeah, absolutely. It's, that's a it's a great idea if you think you're think your uh, your poo smells rosy. Go surfing or do something like that, and you get humbled pretty quick. Um, what's what, what's the? Uh, I meant to post this on Twitter, but we had a one request was said. What's ask Steve what the largest wave he's ever been on. Man, uh, it was probably in Fiji, um, and uh, you know we were staying at Tavarua Namotu, and the pros were towing in bef- the day before. It was too big to paddle in, but uh, you know maybe a, a you know a couple times uh, overhead. Um, I mean. That's, that's a couple times too big for me. Yeah. You know, I got held down that day pretty good. And, uh, and I, you know, I mean, a, a severe hold down, as you can attest, Meb, is, uh, uh, you know, it'll shake your confidence. I mean, I, 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 I was under, I got, I got held under for a long time. You're supposed to relax, as you know, right? When you're getting tumbled by the white water. And I relaxed and relaxed and relaxed and relaxed. And the white water wasn't letting me up. And, and, uh, so in Fiji, you can actually open your eyes. Uh, the water is so clear and, uh, and look around. And I got pushed through the reef and I'm looking in all directions and it's all kind of clear. So I take, you know, three or four strokes with my arms thinking I'm headed towards the surface and I can't. 
I don't think I'm any closer to the surface than I was before I took those three, three strokes. And I'm out of air. My calves have actually locked up. And I take three more strokes, still not at the surface. I've, you know, finally surface, of course. And, uh, but, uh, that was it for that day. You know, that was, uh, makes my palms, was, makes my palms sweat just listening to that. I mean, you know, it's fun to challenge yourself and it's a real joy to, instead of just go to the gym or something to challenge yourself mentally, mentally and, and, uh, and, uh, to see if you're, you've got the guts to go for it and such. But, uh, I usually don't, I'm, I'm, I'm like a waist high surfing sort of guy. I, there's a, there's a, I'm happy to take our wave, our Costco wave storm, um, out and cruise around. That's like the, by the way, listeners, that's like the best purchases. I think it's like a hundred or 200 bucks. Yeah. It's, it's just a hundred dollars. Yep. And it is the best purchase. Yep. And it's funny because you see down in Manhattan beach. Now you see a lot of some of the best surfers. I mean, I'm sure they're just playing around, but out ripping around on these wave storm boards. So it's not, there's no stigma yeah. to riding one of these. I love it. Yeah. Just get out there. I, this morning, uh, I took two of my newer employees out to surf. There was uh, one of them's first time and yesterday was the other one's first time. And they were both out of gas almost instantly, but they were, they were in heaven. You know, one of them's from Colorado. He'd never surfed. The other one's from Chicago. You know, they don't have any familiarity with the ocean, but it's just, uh, brings joy in so many ways. And in 20 minutes, they were done and we were back in the office so well, life, life's, life's watching someone's good. watching someone's face on the first wave they get set up um i actually tried to buy some surf lessons last night at a silent auction and i lost because we're trying to get my uh my co-host jeff out in the water and he's he's afraid of the shark so um we'll get him out one day is the is the sugar root model coming to life wasn't there wasn't there a surfboard you were gonna have coming out yeah at some point? you know uh starboard which is the leading stand-up paddleboard company did did make a uh steve sugar model pro xl so it's funny because you met sean pointer who's their superstar two-time world champ and so they have all these world champs with their pro model and then somehow there's this old guy from florida who has a pro model which makes <laughs> no sense but uh it was it was kind of them to people to, may start uh, buying it they're just gonna have trouble pronouncing the name on the that's, on that's right that's it right say, so it must be a cool model if it has this many letters what i what it was the story is i convinced them that like look you make all these pro models but all these guys weigh 140 pounds and nobody can actually nobody can actually buy a pro model why don't you make a pro model that actually uh normal people can uh uh, can surf and they said yeah well you help us do it it's absolutely and so uh, so that's where the pro xl model came in so you don't have to be zero <laughs> percent body fat to to use a pro model you can use my my model that's awesome steve it's been a blast thanks for uh taking the time out today listeners um thanks for taking the time to listen we always welcome feedback and questions for the mailbag at feedback at the mebfabershow.com as a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>